The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. We are in John chapter 8, uh, as Ryan was saying, so you can go ahead and flip to John 8 in your Bibles. But let me get, um, catch you up a little bit, depending on whether or not you were here the last couple of weeks, you have a completely different understanding of where we are right now. Um, you know, last week, Russell handled a very difficult passage that is, in a, is footnoted in pretty much all the Bibles in the room, probably, that has to say with something not, that passage not being in the earliest manuscripts and how do we handle it today is, is really what um, Pastor Russell talked about last Sunday. And so if you'd like to know more about that, if you missed it last week, you can go online and, and you can watch it. But for our context today, we actually need to go before that previous passage and jump back into the end of John chapter 7, which finishes up in John 7, verse, uh, verse 52. Jesus is still in the temple, and it's still the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's the last day of this feast. And uh, it's important for us to know a little bit about the temple as we're understanding the context of what's going on. You see, we can, we can read this story and, come and not appreciate the fullness of what's actually happening if we don't have a little bit of understanding of the temple in Jesus' day. And so there's a, a series of pictures up on the screen that you'll be able to see. This is a, a picture of a model of the temple, and you can see inside of a much broader um, Gentile square area where other, anybody could really kind of walk into. You have this central um, temple area, kind of like temple proper right there. And depending on who you were and, and your, your gender, you could get into different aspects of that temple. Jesus is actually in that central temple area in what's called the court of women. You'll see in verse 20 in our passage today that it says that he was in the treasury, and that is this court of women. That's where the money was collected. That's where people bring in and, and, and give their offerings, okay? This, court, this women's courtyard is one of the most heavily trafficked places in the temple. It's also quite large. It looks small on there, but take a look at that size comparison there, a football field compared to um, the, the size of this area. This, this has a lot of people that are walking through it all day long, and this is where Jesus is in our passage today. And like I said, it's still this last day of this Feast of the Tabernacles. And so let's, let's take a look at our scripture for today. It's John 8, verses uh, 12 through 20. This is what it says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? 
And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So our big idea today is that the followers of Jesus receive salvation and illuminated vision, both now and looking ahead to eternity. Followers of Jesus receive salvation and illuminated vision, both now and looking ahead to eternity. There's a change that happens in the lives of the followers of Christ. And Jesus makes a Uh, another illustrative declaration here in our passage. The reason I say another and the reason I say illustrative is because we need to understand that context. You see, back in John chapter seven, if you were here a few weeks ago, um, Pastor Russell was talking about, Jesus talking about the living water. And you may recall, he talked about a ceremony that happens throughout this feast in which they would bring water in jugs and pour it out. And this was a daily event. And on that last day, they brought in empty jugs and pretended to pour it out. And in that moment, is when Jesus says, or when Jesus talks about being living water or having living water. It's right there. It's illustrated right in what's happening. Well, today we have another illustration that's going on because what also happened during that week is there was a light ceremony that there were huge candelabras that were lit up in this temple during that week. It would look something like that. That all week long, at night, it would not be dark as it normally would be. There wouldn't be the normal amount of lighting. There was an abundance of light. And so night after night after night, these candelabras are shining, and there is light throughout the temple. There is light throughout Jerusalem that is not like that the rest of the year. And it's in this context that Jesus stands in the temple and says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He makes in this declaration his identity known, that I am the light of life. It's his second I am statement. He said, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35. And now he says, I am the light of life. He also has a call in there as well, that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have this light of life. Him saying that implies the fact that if you do not have him, if you are not following him, then you are therefore still in darkness. That there is a change that happens in the lives of those who follow Christ that goes from darkness to light. Which is why our main point today is that the followers of Jesus receive salvation and an illuminated vision. Because if, if all these lights are off in this, in this room and I'm just stumbling around here in the dark and that would be a really awkward way of teaching. For one, I guess, if we couldn't see each other, but I'm stumbling around, I would probably fall off the stage at some point, I'd bump into something, I don't know. But that is what we are naturally in this world, that because we are sinners, we are separated from God, we are living in the darkness of sin and darkness in this world and we are blind to what's actually happening around us. That if we choose to follow Christ, we will gain eternal life, but we'll also gain an illuminated vision, better able to see what is going on right now and to look into eternity. That as believers, we can look at the world around us and we can see sin for what it is. We can see lies for what they are. We can see humanity for who we are. 
And we can see it more clearly than all of those walking in darkness, stumbling around us, blind, leading blind through, through a dark world, trying to figure it out on their own. We can see it clearly through Jesus and the truth of scripture. And we can also look forward to eternity more clearly and with a great hope in what will happen at some point in the future. But see, he's in the temple, right? There are temple and Jewish leaders in that space. And so they respond to what he says. And what they do is the, the, the leaders actually question truth. They question truth back to Jesus. They say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What they're really doing is, is they're begging the question, to what level is the truthfulness of a statement dependent on the person making it? To what level is the truthfulness of a statement dependent on the person making it? Now, their, their statement here has some, some backing in the Old Testament and just in logic to an extent in which they say, they acknowledge that you are bearing witness about yourself. You see, there's, um, there's not only traditions in the, in the Mishnah, but there's also verses in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that talk about the number of witnesses needed to establish a case. And they're kind of tossing all of this into like a legal framework here with their statement. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see, we don't just need to toss the Pharisees' words out just entirely, that there is some base foundational truth and logic at first for what they are saying. They're acknowledging the fact that Jesus is testifying about himself. In fact, Jesus himself, if you look back at John 5, 31, but essentially it says a similar thing. He acknowledges the premise that if, um, if one person is speaking about themselves, then they're not really completely trustworthy and you can't fully necessarily go along with what they say. In John 5, 31, he says, yes, I am testing about, testifying about myself and if it was only me, <laughs> then my testimony wouldn't be true. But he goes on to explain that it's not only him and we'll see that in just a second as well. But there's some basic wisdom there, right? If someone walked up to you and said something that was a little bit odd, you would say, okay, well, does anybody else agree with you? <laughs> Do you have anybody else on your side in terms of this thinking? In fact, if you are studying the, the, the scriptures and you come, up to, come to a conclusion about something a passage says and you can't find anybody else in all of church history that agrees with you, you're probably wrong. There's a lot of smart people that have been studying it for a very long time. If you're the only one that figured this hidden thing out, yeah, I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> There's even a proverb about it. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So there is some wisdom until only one person making a claim. But you see, the problem is the Pharisees go too far. Look back at what they say. You are, be, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You see, their statement is that you're bearing witness about yourself, therefore you're, what you're saying is not true. And they're confusing truthfulness with trustworthiness. And they go too far in saying that just because this one person is saying this thing right now does, 
you cannot go to the extent of saying it's not true. I could bring up the, per, the most untrustworthy person in all of Fort Myers up here, and just because they're untrustworthy in the past does not necessarily mean what they're about to say to you is a lie. I could bring up the person you trust most in all of Fort Myers and bring them up and, what they're, and, what, and have them speak to you, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. That there is a difference between the trustworthiness of the speaker and the truthfulness of what's being said, they're measured a little bit differently. And Jesus responds to this question they have and he clarifies the truth in our next verses. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Because his testimony itself stands on a a truth foundation that doesn't totally depend on more than one witness. You see, truth does not depend on the speaker. It doesn't entirely depend on the person communicating it. And our culture gets this wrong a lot. It's, you know, I hear all the time, you know, I don't know what to believe. There's so much noise out there. There's so many things being said by so many different people. I don't know what's true. I don't know what to believe as the truth. We live in a world in which there's so much information, there's too much information, and it's blurred the lines so that it's confused us to the point that we are constantly doubting whether or not what's being communicated with us is truth. And our world makes a, commits a logical fallacy all the time. It's called the appeal to authority, in which we, we say that some, what someone says is true because of their standing or who they are. That this scientist says this, therefore it's true because they're a scientist. Well, this scientist over here says the exact opposite, and their credentials are just as good as that one. So who do we believe? Whose statement is the truthful one? We have to judge the statement based on its own merit, not just based on who's communicating it. Our culture goes a step further and even um, claims that there's deeper knowledge that can only be gained by which ethnicity you are. Bodhi Bauckham has coined a a term, ethnic Gnosticism, in which he describes it as being, if you can only truly understand things or truly have the, uh, the truth of the knowledge within this one ethnic group. And if you're of a different ethnic group, then we can't even have a conversation about it because we have different levels of understanding of truth and it's the dividing wedge in our culture. And I, don't, I say ethnicity for a reason because there's only one human race. We are all descendants of, of Adam and Eve. We are all descendants. We are all brothers and sisters in a genetic family. There is only one human race. And the truth of scripture is the only true gospel that levels that playing field in which we are all humanity. We are all made in the image of the God. We are all sinners needing a savior. And we as believers have that truth to share. The truth is also grounded in God's reality. Truth does not depend on the speaker. Truth is grounded in God's reality. His message here is that 
My testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. If I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. What he is saying, what he would be judging, is based on the reality, and all reality is God's reality. If you were to say, what is truth? You are say, well, it's what's real, right? It's what's around us. And it's all ultimately anchored in God. That if something is true, it's true for all people in all time. And we get this one wrong all the time in our culture too. We conflate truth and belief on a regular basis in this culture. And so now I believe this to be true has now become my truth. It's my truth and it's your truth. The only person we should be saying your truth of is God. My truth being different than your truth is not truth, it's a belief and it's a different way of viewing the core truth itself. There's four things I wanna I want run through real quick with you about this, this belief versus truth. First off, my belief is not my truth, right? That my truth often can be tested against reality. If I was to walk in here and say, well, my truth is that I can breathe underwater. And don't you dare tell me my truth is false because it's my truth and you have no right to tell me whether my truth is right or wrong. It's my truth. Depending on where you stand in your philosophy of thinking, you may either agree with that or say you're crazy. <clears throat> but see, that belief or that truth of my truth can be put to the test. And if I was to be, and if y'all didn't believe me and I said, well, I'll prove it to you. And I, try, and I you know, brought up like a, a water tank, like some illusionist or something, but I wasn't planning on getting out. I was just gonna jump in, lock it, and show you that I could breathe underwater. <clears throat> yeah, my truth would be in trouble. Because my truth would get smacked with reality and I would drown. My belief is not the same thing as truth. Secondly, we can't speak our beliefs into reality or into existence. Just because we believe it to be true and we say it over and over and over again doesn't make it true. And just because we get convinced a lot of other people to say it too doesn't make it true. There are a ton of things throughout history that the majority of people held as truth that were flat out wrong. I can't speak my truth, my belief into reality and into truth. I also can't speak through claiming some kind of blessing into my life into reality either. It happens very often in the prosperity gospel movement. In fact, I, um, if you look at some of, uh, not in particular, it's just one of the people that I've, that I've seen this happen on, on Twitter is T.D. Jakes would make a statement on Twitter that, um, that says something about some kind of blessing or something, you know, just kind of general statement. And if you read through all the responses, as I've done before, there's a bunch of people saying, I'll claim that. I'll take that as my truth. As if life is just some restaurant and God has given us this menu from the buffet that we can walk through. And on Tuesday, we can say, I'll take that one, that one, and that one, please. Thank you. I'm going to claim it as my truth. I'm going to claim it as true in my life. And because I believe it, it's going to happen. That's not reality. Thirdly, 
Opposing belief claims can't both be true. Now, you would think that would be just logical, and it is. It's called the law of non-contradiction. There's a logical law. That two things claiming opposing truths cannot be true. A cannot equal B and A not equal B. Two plus two can't equal four and five. That opposing beliefs cannot be true. Opposing truths cannot both be true. Now, I mean, picture like this, right? You walk out of taking a test in school or something and you're like, okay, well, which, you know, one student says this test was really hard. The other student says this test was really easy. Which is true? Are they both true because it's just her truth and his truth? Or is the test, or is there a different way to measure whether or not the test is hard or easy and that's just their subjective belief about the truth of the test? You can go through and find out what was the average score on that test and was it higher or lower than the previous test? And so was it really hard? Or was it really easy compared to other things? You could have the same thing. There's all kinds of sports arguments all the time based on well, who's the greatest, who's the best. And unless you define what statistical categories that you're looking at, until you define what best or greatest is, you can't really have a conversation about the truthfulness of that claim. And the problem is that this idea filters down into religious truth. And then if you believe that one person can have their truth, another person can have their truth, then we have different religious teachings that are opposite each other, that are in conflict. And we have a bunch of people walking around this world saying all religions are equal. They all have what they can contribute. They're all about morality. It's all about being a good person. You know, they all worship the same God. You know, all of this, can't we just, you know, uh, not just coexist by loving one another, but can't we just coexist by having all of our beliefs be equally true? But there's a problem. Every other religion claims different things about God compared to Christianity. If you, if you have Christianity saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ, and you have another religion teaching that Jesus was, um, was, just, God, was just man and not God, you have another one teaching he was, he was just God and not man, and you have, you know, was he in the flesh or was he not in the flesh? Um, did he die or did he not die? Islam teaches that Jesus will actually be the one who judges Christians in the end and condemns the believers of, that believe in Christ as liars about God. Because if we are claiming that Jesus is God, we are, and we're wrong, we are lying about God. You can't have conflicting views like that. Both be true. We have to take the statements themselves and do the best job we can of identifying which is true. Compare it with reality and see which one is reality. Jesus says one more thing. He says in verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. See, just like he says in John chapter five, Jesus says, okay, well, first of all, what, what I say is, is true or false based on whether it is or not. And I'll grant you that there should be somebody else bearing witness about me. And in fact, there is, there's the Father. Talked a few weeks ago about how the miracles in the Bible, the primary purpose of, of, of most of those is to um, confirm a message and the messenger. 
and that the miracles that Jesus was working in his ministry were actually part of the father being his second witness and confirming that this is the Messiah. You also had John the Baptist. He refers to the, the, the Old Testament itself in John 5 as a witness about him. That yes, my truth, the truthfulness of what I'm saying about being the light stands alone on its own. And yet there is more than just one witness about it. He kind of grants that premise and says, well, it, it qualifies under that as well. The leaders try to get out of it. <laughs> they try to ignore what he's saying and they deflect. And they say in verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Where is this father? Trying to poke fun at him a little bit, most likely. Where is this, this father that's going to be your second it's not the first time he's made some kind of comment about uh, his, his father essentially being God and they understood it at times. I think they kind of are ignoring it here probably. Where is this father? They deflect. The leaders deflect, but Jesus redirects to the heart of the matter in verse 19. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He redirects right to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that the problem is not a lack of evidence, but a hardened heart. Those Pharisees were in the darkness and they were looking at the light, but they're refusing to acknowledge him as the light. They wanted to keep living in the darkness. They didn't need more evidence. They had all the evidence they need. The problem was they didn't know the father. And because they didn't know the Father, they didn't recognize the Son. This is a, a recurring statement that Jesus makes through the Gospels. So then how do they respond? They go ahead and they arrest him, right? He's in the temple. He's just made them mad. <laughs> He's just claimed they don't know the Father. And yet the leaders waver. In verse 20, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Even if they tried to arrest them, they wouldn't have succeeded because they were not going to overrule the sovereignty of God and it wasn't Jesus' time yet. He's standing in the middle of the temple teaching them the truth and they waver. See, Jesus said, I am the, the light of life. It wasn't just the only time he talked about light though. Jesus also said that the church is the light. In Matthew chapter five, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. He says, we are the light. The followers of him are not just stepping out of darkness and out of sin and death and into eternal life, but they're stepping out of darkness and becoming light bearers themselves. Carrying torches ourselves into the darkness of this world. But are we? He says we are the light. Is your workplace any less dark because you're in it? Is your school any less dark because you're in it? Is your neighborhood any less dark because you're living in it? Is this city less dark because of this church? Is it? How often as we go through our lives, we go to do a good job at work, 
We go to do a good job in school. And those are good things. But are we there first and foremost as light bearers? Are we there first and foremost carriers of the gospel? Ready at a moment's notice to give an answer for the hope that we have? Has anybody asked you recently why you're hopeful? If I asked them, would they even say you are? Is it living in your life like that? I don't, I don't say these things as someone who's standing up here living this out perfectly every day. Don't get me wrong. I struggle with the same doubts and fears as you do in living as the light in the darkness. We're all human. But we've been given a spirit of courage. We've been given the Holy Spirit that will work through us, that will enable us to be light bearers if we seek after him. Are we being the light? I'm gonna ask them to, to turn down the lights for a minute. We're gonna do something that, just to visualize this. Take out your phones for me if you have one, if you don't mind. You see, Jesus started as the light. He is the light. But go ahead and flip your flashlight on if you know how to do that and hold it up. Together as the church, we can be the light. We can live sent for him because we have been sent by him. No matter where we go, our first primary goal is to be a disciple of Jesus and a carrier of the gospel. Let us be the light. And if you walked in here still in the darkness, please take a hard look at your life and at the truth of Jesus and allow him to change your life and bring you into the light.